Okay, good morning everyone. Is this uh, loud enough? Can you hear me okay? Yeah? Heather, what do you think? No, not loud enough. Okay. All right. Just waiting for Doomy here. Thanks, brother. Appreciate that. Okay, so it's a joy to be back in the pulpit with you. It's a joy to open God's Word and to see what He has to say to us from His Word this morning. Um, I'm going to be in Psalm 32 this morning. And uh, starting in March, we'll start a new series. Um, I'll be preaching through the Gospel of Mark. Um, But for today... We're in Psalm 32. Now, some of you may have heard me use this quote before. And uh, that's because I believe it really does get at the heart of so much of the human experience. And it's quite beautiful. Uh, In his book on marriage, Pastor Tim Keller says this. He says, To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial to be known and not loved is our greatest fear but to be fully known and truly loved is a lot like being loved by God it is what we need more than anything it liberates us from pretense it humbles us out of our self-righteousness And it fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. So let's think about this for a moment. You know, he's talking about what marriage should be like, but he's comparing it to what our relationship with God is like. He says, it's nice to be liked and loved by people who think they know you, but don't truly know you, right? That's nice, but it's shallow. And if you're honest with yourself, if you know that people don't actually know you, know the real you, then all that popularity doesn't mean much. It certainly doesn't inspire true confidence because there's always this realization, this sense of, well, would they really like me if they really knew me? Would they love the real me? And that, of course, is so different from being fully known, from knowing you are fully known and truly loved. Keller says that that frees us from feeling like we need to pretend to be someone we're not, from desperately trying to keep certain aspects of ourselves hidden from people, from keeping certain things covered up. I can just enjoy the security of knowing that this person loves me and accepts me just the way I am. And there's nothing that can change that. No way I can slip up. No way you can see the real me and get scared away. No skeleton anyone can pull out of my closet. And Killer says this humbles us out of our self-righteousness. 
And that's because we realize, right, when somebody really knows us, that whatever our press reports may be, they know the truth. I'm not a man who never loses his temper. I'm not a man who never misses daily Bible reading. I'm not a man as generous or as selfless or as consistent as some may think. I'm just not. And that's okay. Not, not in the sense that I don't need to strive for growth and change. But it's okay in the sense that if it's hard and I struggle and there are ups and downs, and, and they always are, if we're honest, I'm loved anyway. There's a wonderful sense of security and confidence that comes with that. And when I know that, I can face anything that life throws at me. So Keller says this is the way marriage should be, and he's comparing it with our relationship with God. But my question for you is, do you know that that is what it's like to be loved by God? Really. Not just hypothetically, not just in the abstract, but practically in your day-to-day life. Is that your experience of walking with God? Is that the reality that you live in? Are you freed from hiding and pretending? Are you humbled out of thinking and acting like you are holier than you are or have less struggles than you do? Because you know, you know, God will love you even on your worst days and even if He sees the very, very worst of you. Honestly, I don't think most of us live out that reality daily. At least not to the extent we could and not to the consistency we should. And to help us see that God really does love us like this and see the blessing of living in light of this reality, we're going to spend some time in Psalm 32. We're going to see King David's reflection on his own experience with sin, with confession, and with God's forgiveness. So if you haven't already turned there in your Bibles, please do. Psalm 32. Like all Psalms, uh, Psalm 32 is an individual unit, meaning that there's a theme that runs all the way through the Psalm. And like many Psalms, we can also trace a narrative or a story uh, through this Psalm. At the beginning, David testifies to a truth. And then he shares his own experience as to why he declares what he does in the opening verses. And then he turns to us to call us to join him and share in his experience. First of all, we see David's joyful declaration. Blessed are the forgiven and those who walk honestly with God. I'll work our way, I'll read portion by portion of the psalm as we go along. So, his first two verses here. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Blessed 
meaning happy or joyful. Blessed is the man whose transgression, sin, iniquity is forgiven, it's covered, it's not counted against him. Blessed or happy, joyful is the man who knows that Yahweh, the God of the universe, the holy judge of all the earth, does not count his sin against him. Blessed is the man who knows that the sin that makes him deserving of death, deserving of banishment from God's presence forever, that sin has been covered. It's been made to disappear. Blessed, happy, joyful is the man who knows that his greatest problem has been solved. His greatest need has been met. Blessed, happy, joyful is the man who knows that the barrier between him and God is gone. In verse 2, 2b says, Blessed, happy, joyful is the man in who there is no deceit. In context here, I think the point David is making is that there is no deceit in this man's walk with God, in his interactions with God. He's not trying to deceive God in any way. He is truly repentant. Okay, And what we mean by that is that when he confesses his sin, he isn't just saying the words. He isn't just doing something religious. There's true sorrow over his sin. There's a genuine desire to turn from it and to honor and obey God. And he's not hiding anything from God either. He's open and honest with God about his sin. And all of his sin. The smaller sins, the bigger sins. The sins others may know about. And the private sins that nobody else has seen. His sinful actions and his sinful thoughts and attitudes. The sins he may think are more understandable or forgivable and the sins he is most deeply ashamed of. And he's calling a spade a spade. He's not playing games with sin. He isn't downplaying sin by renaming it something that feels less weighty or blame-shifting or making excuses for it. Blessed, happy, joyful is he who is honest and transparent in his walk with God. And David, of course, is not just saying this. He's speaking from personal experience. And he shares that experience with us as we continue on in the psalm. But we see David's experience here. First of all, what it was like when he didn't confess his sin to God. That's in verses 3 to 4. He says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. When he didn't confess his sin to God, David says his bones wasted away. And this psalm, it's poetry. So the point here is not that his bones actually disintegrated, but that experientially, it's as if they did. The weight of his sin was so heavy on him that it was as if he had no bones to hold him up. No skeletal structure. 
He struggled to get out of bed in the morning. He felt the weight of the world on his shoulders. He's describing the experience of a gnawing conscience and the weight of guilt and shame. And it absolutely exhausted him. He says, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. That's a vivid picture after the last couple of weeks, isn't it? My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Sometimes our problem in life is not just that we hide our sin from God, but that we don't take our sin seriously enough. We believe, that our, we believe our own lies and excuses and, and, and attempts to downplay sin. We actually start to believe, um, believe what, we, what, we, uh, what we would say to others to justify ourselves or, or make ourselves look less bad. But God doesn't let His children stay there. And that is what David is describing here. The conviction of the Holy Spirit. He burdens our conscience. He makes us see and feel the sinfulness of our sin. And when he does that, it is a very unpleasant experience. As David says here, day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. And though this may not sound very loving, according to our common cultural mindset these days, right? Our common cultural mindset these days tends to be that love is best expressed by always affirming people, by always agreeing them and, with them and cheering them on in whatever direction they may choose. Even though, right, even though this jars with that common mindset, this is love. This is love. I had to remind myself of that recently when I had a conversation with a young man who started down a road who started down a road that is as destructive as it possibly could be both for him and for others and it's, it's the craziest thing he just doesn't seem to be anywhere near grasping the weightiness of what of his choices, of the path he's headed down. Not, not even close. And I had to sit there across the table from him and basically just do everything I can to make his conscience feel something. You know, and you're sitting there and it's like, it doesn't, doesn't feel very loving. But I realize, if I, if I can't help him see the sinfulness of, of his actions. If I can see him, help him see that how destructive this path is he's on, he's just going to continue going down this road and it's going to ruin him and ruin everyone close to him. So in love, I have to, I have to beg and plead with him. I have to do everything I can to help him see the wickedness of his choices. It would have been unloving to do anything else. Proverbs 27.6 tells us, Faithful, 
Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Now think about that picture. The world tells us to affirm and flatter people basically. Make people feel good no matter what their circumstances, no matter what the choices are that they're making. No matter what their actions and decisions. Kiss, 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 kiss. Affirm, 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 affirm. But even if this is well-intentioned, these are the kisses of an enemy. They lie. They leave us on the wrong path and encourage us to keep heading in a harmful, dangerous direction. A true friend, a faithful friend, on the other hand, is willing to wound you to hurt you for your good. They will tell you things you don't like so that you can make changes for your good. And they'll keep telling you. They'll keep having those awkward conversations until you make the changes you need to make. And brothers and sisters, our God is a faithful friend. Our God is a faithful friend. He's not just going to leave us on a road to destruction. When you do not confess your sin, expect the Holy Spirit to nag at you through your conscience. Expect to feel the heavy hand of God upon you. Next, we see David's experience. What it was like when he confessed his sin. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, feeling the weight of guilt, David then decides, I'm going to be honest with God about my sin. I'm going to stop trying to cover it up. It's an interesting thing how similar language is used here uh, to what we saw earlier in the psalm. But it's very clear in Scripture, when we try to cover our sin, we fail. It's like we're trying to cover it up with, with a blanket, but the blanket's not quite big enough. And as much as we try and stretch this blanket over it, there's always something sticking out. We can't cover our sin. Only God can cover our sin. Only God can cover sin in a way that it truly disappears. So David stops trying to hide his sin and chooses to be honest with God about it. He stops trying to protect himself by pretending nothing happened or justify himself by downplaying it or excusing it. He sticks out his neck right, and tells the holy God who hates sin, about his sin. And what happens? What happens? God forgave the iniquity of his sin. God forgave the iniquity of his sin. And how does David respond to this? Well, we see here his prayer as he starts interacting directly with God um, about 
uh, it, it responds to, to God's forgiveness and interacts directly with God about it. And he says, Therefore let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. And he's expressing here a desire that everybody would know the joy he knows of forgiveness. The joy he knows of walking closely and honestly and transparently with God. And he wants them to, to, to um, have that opportunity so he doesn't want them to, to put it off too late. David responds by asking God to move all his people to the same honesty and transparency with him. David wants everyone to enjoy the joy of God's forgiveness, of walking closely with him, of nothing hindering their fellowship. And as I said, there's an urgency to this request. David's concerned that they take the opportunity while they can, as the passage says, at a time when God may be found. What does he mean by this? Well, there's a few possibilities, right? There's the simple fact that life is complicated and we don't know what tomorrow will bring, right? We shouldn't presume on the opportunity to talk to God honestly. Okay, I'm going to have a good, good, good time of just being very honest with God and confessing my sin and I'm going to have a nice quiet time next week. Now, I'll, 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 I'll talk to God about this tomorrow. We can't presume upon that. We should do it now. And then there's also the danger of sin building momentum in our lives and drawing us further and further away from God relationally. Remember, the Bible teaches us that salvation is a permanent thing. However, It also teaches us that the way we persevere to the end is by believing God every day, by turning from sin to Christ every day, by taking sin seriously and not allowing it to draw our hearts away from God. One of the biggest lies out there is that we must clean ourselves up before we come to God. Brothers and sisters, not only does God not require that of us, it's also not possible. If you are wanting to first have a week of sinlessness before you can feel comfortable coming into God's presence and talking honestly with Him about the terrible week you just had, you will never talk to God. You need His help. David tells us, I confess my sin and God forgave me. That's how this works. It's, it's amazingly simple. I go to God honest about the fact that I'm a sinner. Honest about the fact that I desperately need His mercy and grace. And God, who's full of mercy and grace, and loves to extend it to us, does so. Our God forgives. Embrace that. Embrace that. 
David continues in his prayer in verse 7. You are a hiding place for me, God. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. We don't need to hide from God. We can hide in God. Right? When we've had an awful week, when we've failed in so many ways, it's so easy to go down that road, right? Adam and Eve in the garden and hiding from God, trying to cover ourselves up. God says, David says, no, no, I don't need to hide from God. I hide in God. He covers me. And David says, God preserves him from trouble. He helps him break the momentum of sin in his life and get off the destructive pathway that it is. He delivers him from the power of sin in his life. We need to confess our sin because God forgives and because we want to maintain and enjoy a relational closeness with Him. But we also need to confess our sin regularly because we need God's help in breaking away from our sin. And, and we need God's help in getting its hooks out of us. Next, in this psalm, we see God now respond. Here's God's plea. God's plea is receive God's loving direction. Receive God's loving direction. We see this from verse 8. I, this is God speaking here, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. God makes clear in these verses, He's committed to teaching and instructing His children, to counseling us and showing us the way to go. And His loving eye is always on us. This reminds us of another psalm, right? Psalm 23, that describes God as a, as a loving shepherd who makes me lie down in green pastures and who leads me beside still waters, right? We are not in this world alone. He is leading us and guiding us every step of the way. But now listen to verse 9. There's a warning here. Be not like a horse or a mule without misunderstanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. So in other words, God's saying, I'm going to lead you, I'm going to guide you in love and in care for you. I'm going to lead you and I'm going to guide you and I'm committed to that. So, don't be like a horse or a mule that needs a bit between its teeth and a bridle around its neck to be forcefully directed a certain way before it's going to head in that direction. <clears throat> Don't be like that. Be easily led. Follow my direction. Follow my counsel. Follow my ways. So that I don't have to more forcefully, in love, but more forcefully direct you the way you need to go. 
The book of Hebrews tells us in chapter 12, Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. This is not about punishment, brothers and sisters. This is about a loving Father correcting us and pointing us in the right direction. A few verses later in Hebrews 12, He, that's God, disciplines us for our good, so that we may share in His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. So God's discipline is a good thing. Not a pleasant thing, but a good thing. But the call here is while recognizing it as a good thing, we should realize it's not pleasant. So rather live in such a way that God doesn't need to discipline you. Rather live in such a way where you're following His leading and direction without the need for discipline. Now the psalm comes so close with David summarizing how we should think about the amazing reality that God forgives sin and giving an invitation to all believers. David's invitation is this. Essentially, trust in God's steadfast love and rejoice in Him. Verse 10 says, Many are the sorrows of the wicked. But steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. The wicked face all, face this life and all its difficulties alone. But Christians are surrounded by God's steadfast love. Love that is full of mercy and grace. Love that forgives. Love that will not let us go. Love that is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. We saw that even in the, the call to worship. His steadfast love endures forever. Love that Paul tells us in the New Testament that we can never be separated from, right? That wonderful passage in Romans 8. Let me ask you, do you trust that? Do you believe that God has forgiven you because Jesus has paid the price for your sin, no matter how serious your sin may be. Okay? Do you believe that? Do you believe that your salvation is not based on your works? It's not based on your religious activity. It's not based on your comparative morality. It's not based on the good works that you do. It's not based on, on the things you're able to avoid. I, you know, I've never, never smoked a cigarette, never been drunk. Do you realize your salvation has nothing to do with those things? Truly. Do you have full confidence before God because you know you are forgiven? In Christ Jesus. 
You are forgiven by grace alone. Do you believe that God is full of mercy and grace? And always will be. Do you believe that His love for you will not change? Then trust that you can always bring your sin to Him. No matter how shameful and heavy it may be. There's no sin too great. There's nothing God can find out about you that will separate you from His love. Your doubts. Maybe you... At some point, you've been guilty of something like sexual abuse or adultery. Maybe you struggle with homosexual desires. Maybe you're addicted to pornography. Maybe you've been someone who's, who's stolen things. Maybe you've even committed murder. Maybe you struggle with drunkenness, with laziness, with selfishness. You're irritable. You're somebody who has embarrassing outbursts of anger. Even you yourself just can't believe how quickly things have escalated. Throwing frying pans across the room, punching through doors, Maybe you're somebody who really struggles to forgive and just feels bitter towards a number of people. Confess your sin to God and receive His forgiveness. Confess your sin to God and receive His forgiveness. It's that simple. It's that simple. When we ask for forgiveness... When we ask for forgiveness, brothers and sisters, we can, we can thank God for giving His forgiveness in the same prayer. You can ask for forgiveness knowing it is granted. Okay? And now here's the thing. Why then? Why, why, why then is it even important to confess our sin? Why is it even important to ask for forgiveness? Well, Pastor Josh Mack explained it to me this way, and I think it's a very helpful um, way to describe this. See, if you think about something like a marriage, right? I'm not asking for forgiveness from, from my wife so that she won't divorce me. Okay? We're married. She's promised to be with me till death does, uh, does us part, right? But if I have just lost my temper and blown up at her and said some hurtful things, Relationally, there's still issues, right? We're not, we're not as close as we were before that fight, right? There are things that, um, that just relationally, it makes sense. And she needs to hear me say, I'm sorry I did that. She needs to hear me say, I'm sorry I hurt you. She needs to hear me say, I don't want this to be how our relationship is. She needs to hear me say, I don't want to keep doing that. I want to turn away from that. Please forgive me. Relationally, that makes all the difference. Okay? 
So this is not about getting saved again and again and again. I'm saved, and then relationally with God, I address sin in my life as it comes up regularly, on a consistent basis. I don't let issue after issue get in there and start making me feel more and more and more distant from God relationally. I don't want to get to the point where I feel like I can't pray even because there's all these things that I haven't, that I know are there that I just haven't talked to God about. So now here's the way this should work, brothers and sisters. If you recognize the truth of the gospel, if you recognize God's love for you and His, His willingness always to forgive you when you are asking for forgiveness, confessing sin and asking for forgiveness with sincerity, okay? then even after a terrible week, you shouldn't come to church and feel like, oh, I can't sing these songs. How can I sing these songs after a week like I've just had? Now, okay, let me clarify. If you haven't yet talked to God about the horrible week that you've had, then I understand you feeling that way. But if you've gone to God and confessed your sin and asked for forgiveness, then come here on Sunday morning and from the bottom of your heart, sing, my sins, they are many, but His mercy is more. Sing that. Mean it. Come to church on Sunday and don't feel like, oh, I can't take communion because, you know, I cheated on my test and, you know, I, I, I lied about it initially and I've just been feeling so distant from God. No, right? If you're repentant, if you've confessed that to the Lord, and you've done what you need to do in terms of now confessing the cheating on the test to to, to your teacher, you, you've, you've, you've resolved, done what God calls you to do with that issue. You can trust, I am forgiven. And you can sit here on a Sunday morning, and you can take that bread, and you can take that cup, and you can say, His blood was shed for me. His body was broken for me. And I'm going to take this in confidence that I'm forgiven. I'm going to take this in confidence I am forgiven. When we live in this reality, brothers and sisters, we can agree wholeheartedly with David. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Amen.